So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tony. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? Good. Uh, my name is Dave Hahn. I'm uh, the privileged soul who gets to open God's word with you today. Uh, if you haven't been around, we um, are finishing up a six-week series in the book of Ruth. Uh, it's been a huge blessing, huge encouragement uh, to me, um, and so I, I hope that it's been the same for you. Um, it is likely, for those of you who know me, no surprise that I've always been a bit odd and non-traditional. Um, if you ha don't know me and you're just looking at me right now, you're probably going, yeah, I could see it. And here's what I mean by that. Most of us at some point in our lives dream of a day where we will have a husband or a wife, where we will have kids of our own, where we'll have a home to live in with them, but not me. For a long time, I did not want any of that. I wanted to play in a band with my friends and travel. I wanted to get out of Neshota, where I spent most of my childhood. I wanted to play music. I wanted to see the world. So imagine my surprise when in the fall of 2001, I found myself two years married. And I was driving around Sussex looking for a home to buy. God has a great sense of humor. Sheila and I lived in Wauwatosa at the time. We were on the hunt for our first house. Sheila loved cute houses with field stone on the front, but most of those were outside of our price range, what we carried on and looked anyway. One Sunday afternoon, we had gathered addresses of homes that we could afford, and Sheila found relatively cute, and we decided to divide and to conquer. Sheila went to New Berlin. I went north to Sussex. Now, at that time, just a little history lesson, at that time, there was no such thing as a GPS in your pocket. No such thing as that. We had this thing called MapQuest. Who remembers MapQuest? Okay. MapQuest, for those of you who are too young for it, uh, you would type an address that you were looking for into it, not unlike what you would do today. But what you would get back is this relatively cruddy map with a star showing you where you were supposed to go and turn-by-turn -turn directions. And those turn-by-turn -turn directions were suspect. 
Not unlike, though, the GPS devices that are in our pockets today, MapQuest struggled with directional and coordinate-based addresses, right? So many of us in this room probably have the north, north and west or the south and east or whatever, and when you were typing those addresses into MapQuest, it was like, north what? West what? What are we doing here? What you would get back from MapQuest was basically a, here's the road, good luck from there. That's what you would get from MapQuest, essentially. So I typed in Quail Run Lane, which was the house that I was going to look at in Sussex, printed out directions, and headed north. I found Sussex, but the house that I was looking for, according to MapQuest's directions, put me in the middle of a pine tree farm. Now, I'm non-traditional, but I'm not dumb. I did not think that the house that we were going to look at would require me to walk a half a mile through pine trees to find the front door. So I resolved myself to the idea that I was lost. And I had no idea at that moment if I would ever get to where I was supposed to be. And we each have stories like that, right? We've all gotten lost, directionally speaking, whether it be because we're stubborn and we think we know best, and I'm not going to go and ask gas station guy, or because the directions that we were given by places like our apps or our MapQuest were bad. And many of us, too, have stories of being lost in life, where we find ourselves in a place where we just don't know where we are or where it is that we're headed. For many of those same reasons, we're not sure where to go or how to get there. And we find ourselves stuck in the middle of a pine, field of pine trees or worse, spiritually speaking. And five weeks ago, we began working through a story of lostness. In the story of Naomi, her husband Elimelech, their two sons, and the women that they ended up marrying. Things got difficult in their hometown of Bethlehem. They made some bad decisions, left God, and found themselves in the spiritual wilderness of Moab. And over the last four weeks, we've watched as God through his sovereignty and providence, brought Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, back to Israel. The very place that God intended for them all along. The place that Naomi and her family never should have left. And the place that Ruth, a Moabite woman, longed for, even if she didn't realize it at the time. Last week in particular, we looked at the first half of Ruth, chapter 4, where Boaz, a kinsman in Goel, according to the book of Ruth, who was of the house of Elimelech, declared his intent to redeem Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, and established a covenant with Ruth to be her husband. And today, we finish up the book of Ruth in chapter 4, verses 13 through 22, and we see both Ruth and Naomi come to understand that God has led them to this place, that his hand of protection and provision was upon them all along. So to give some added context to verses 13 through 22 that we'll be in today, I'd like to first circle back to verses 11 through 22, or 11 through 12. Beginning in verse 11, we read, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this 
young woman. So verses 11 and 12, like the rest of the book of Ruth, give us a window into the traditions, sayings, and behaviors of an Israelite at least 3,000 years ago, many of which are odd and confusing to we who are residents of southeastern Wisconsin in 2019. Is anybody wondering about the contents of what we just read? I mean, the book of Ruth is filled with all these oddities. Does anybody know anyone who asked an older man to marry her by laying at his feet while he slept in a barn? Have you bought land or a home where individuals were part of the deal? Human beings were part of that deal. Is there anyone who collects shoes as a proof of purchase? It's odd, right? And back in verse 11, we find a large crowd of people at the city gate who had just witnessed the covenant that Boaz established with Ruth, a commitment to be her redeemer and to marry her. And the crowd likely cheers at the joining together of Ruth and Boaz, and then they pronounce a blessing on them. And it is the content of this blessing that is a bit unusual. But to keep things simple, understand and hear the crowd's blessing this way. They essentially said, May your wife, like Rachel and Leah, be a mother to the nation of Israel. And may you and your offspring, like Perez, be renowned in Bethlehem. And as we will see, this blessing, whether they knew it or not, was prophetic and fulfilled in ways that no one could have imagined. And we see the beginnings of the fulfillment of this blessing in verse 13. It says, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. In Boaz and Ruth, we see the three parts of a marriage covenant fulfilled. First, we see Boaz's promise to love and to marry Ruth. That's where it begins, right? Second, we see a covenant made and witnessed publicly. Last week, we talked about that public witness is always a part of covenant-making, for those of us who have been married, we have stood in front of others, our loved ones and our friends, and we have established publicly this covenant that we have promised to make one to another. And then thirdly, we see their sexual union in symbol, as a symbol that they have become one flesh. God has made them one flesh, and they enter into union physically one with another. But it is the third aspect of this covenant that our modern culture prefers to front load. We don't believe that there is a divine and a holy order to the covenant of marriage and sexual union with one another. We believe that God's command to abstain from sex outside of marriage is antiquated and unrealistic as though God's good and right design has some kind of expiration date. Friends, God is not trying to steal joy from us in his commands. He is not trying to steal joy from us specifically in his command that sexual union only be entered into with members of the opposite sex through marriage. Rather, he wants to increase our joy. And we have to trust him in that. And he's asking us to trust. And he's asking us to obey. We are physical, emotional, and spiritual beings, and it is through marriage that we become one flesh. And all three aspects of our humanity are united with that other person. To enter into physical union with one whom you are also 
emotionally and spiritually united brings a joy far greater than sex alone ever could. To try and separate physical union from the emotional and the spiritual is to rob yourself of the joy that God designed and intends, and it is sinful, and it is dishonest. Verse 13 continues, And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now, to the degree that conception can be difficult and not guaranteed in our modern culture, it was all the more difficult and never taken for granted in the time of Ruth and Boaz. Medicines and things like that were nowhere near what they are today. Understanding of conception was nowhere near what it is today. Children at this time, just much like at our time, were seen as a gift, but was never seen as a right. So let it not be lost on us that it is God who gives life. That's what this second half of verse 13 is telling us. It is God who gives life, and it is God who takes it away. You give and take away is what we just sang. It is the Lord who gave Ruth conception. Our lives, my friends, our very lives, even in the womb, are not our own. They belong to the one who made us. And our every breath lay in his merciful and gracious hands. Nothing can or will happen to us apart from him allowing it. And how you feel about that truth is a great indicator of your relationship with God and your understanding of his character. I mean, does it scare you that God holds your breath in his hands? All kinds of things in our life happen that remind us that we're not in control, that our life is not our own. Are you scared by that idea or does it bring you an overwhelming sense of gladness and peace? knowing that nothing happens apart from him allowing it and that your windpipe sits between his thumb and forefinger and that he's good. Friends, our lives are his and we can trust him. The lives of our kids are his and we can trust him. The lives of our friends and family and loved ones are his and we can trust him. And for those who are spiritually born of God in Christ, our lives go on forever with him and in him. He, Jesus Christ, tasted death for us so that we would not have to. That is the good news of the gospel. In verses 11 and 12, we saw a blessing declared over Ruth and Boaz in verses 14 and 15, it is Naomi who receives the blessing. It reads, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. The women declare a blessing over Naomi, the bitter one. She changed her name to Mara, which means bitter. That the women declared a blessing over Naomi, but isn't there a part of you that's going, well, wait, now this is Ruth's story. This is Ruth's child. The name of the book is Ruth. Ruth. 
Chapter one tells us that Ruth was childless in her first marriage, but here in chapter four, the Lord gave her conception. So why then does Naomi receive this blessing? You see, Naomi believed that God had abandoned her and had left her empty because of her disobedience. That's what we learn in chapter one. And yet God, and yet God, in his great love and mercy, brought her back to Bethlehem to begin this great work of redemption. In Ruth, Naomi received more than a perfect family, seven sons. The number seven is always a number that means perfection. He brought her, that in Ruth, Naomi received more than a perfect family filled with sons who would care for her ever could. She lost the life that she once had. But God, in return, gave her a life that was far better. That's the content of this blessing, recognition thereof. And in the birth of her grandchild, God wanted Naomi to know, you have not been brought back empty. You have not been left without a redeemer. Your redeemer's name will be renowned in Israel. He shall restore your life, and he shall nourish you in your old age. And each of these declarations were a foretaste of their greater realities because someone greater than Boaz, the earthly redeemer, and someone greater than the one who lay upon her lap was coming. And he would be born in Bethlehem too. Continuing in verse 17. And the women of their neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So we've talked a lot, actually, in these six weeks about the significance of names. Not only the names themselves, but their significance to that person's identity. The name Elimelech, which is one of the first names we come across in Ruth, means my God is king, understanding where Elimelech came from. The name of his wife, Naomi, means pleasant. And then when she returns to Bethlehem feeling empty, she changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. And now the name of Obed, Naomi's grandson, we learn, means servant. A foretaste of who their future ancestor, born in Bethlehem, would be. The true and eternal servant of God. Which leads us to the last four verses of this book, beginning in verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Genealogies in the Bible, while often boring to read, filled with names that are meant to trip you up, (laughs) remind us that God's plan has come to fruition, that it is coming to fruition, that it will come to fruition as God sees fit. From Perez, one of Bethlehem's greatest sons, we have Boaz, who fathers Obed, who fathers Jesse, who fathers David, Israel's greatest earthly king. A foreshadowing for us to the king of kings, who would be David's son, and David's Lord. And this genealogy, like Jesus' genealogy in the book of Matthew, reminds us of God's sovereign 
and providential rule. It reminds us that God chooses whom he chooses to bring about his will and to give him glory, including the lineage and ancestry of his son. Do you realize that in Jesus' earthly family we find Tamar, who, was, who had seduced her father-in-law and bore his sons? We find Rahab, a prostitute. We find Ruth, a pagan Moabite woman. Do you realize that Moabites were descendants of Sodom? Sodom and Gomorrah? Everybody knows that phrase, right? That's terrible places. Jesus' lineage came from there? And we also find David, as we talked about, the king of kings, but also one who with Bathsheba committed adultery and killed the husband of Bathsheba to cover his sin. These are ordinary, messed up, sinful people that God has called to himself and has redeemed. And for we who are in Christ, this is our spiritual family too. And with our own sinfulness, disobedience, and brokenness, we add to the mess that God came to rescue us from. We are a community of believers, both locally and globally and historically. And God has redeemed us all. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is the Spirit of God that guides human history, just as His Spirit guides us now. His Spirit led you and I out of darkness and into light. His Spirit led us out of spiritual death into eternal life. And somewhat less importantly, I believe his spirit led me out of that field of pine trees 18 years ago. I remember staring at that map quest printout, which pointed to this empty field of pine trees and thinking, should I just drive around some more aimlessly or should I just go home? This is clearly not what God has in mind for us or where he wants us to be. That's what I was thinking. So I decided to call it a day, get back to our duplex and see how Sheila's day went. And I ended up on Highway 164 and along the way passed by a subdivision and something inside me said, hey, turn around. And so I did and I looked up at that street sign entering into, a sub, into this subdivision and as God would have it, the name of the road was one that was listed on my map. And before long... I found the house that I was looking for. Though that excitement, even as you feel it now, did not last for long. <laughs> because I knew right away that this house was not going to work for us. It had a drainage hose into the street just belching water. And it was September and it hadn't rained for like three weeks. I don't know where this water was coming from. So we were looking for a house, not an endless financial project. And so I thought, okay, God, not this house. And then I noticed another sign in their yard that said, house for sale by owner with an arrow pointing that way. I thought, well, as long as I'm here. And I headed up the street and checked it out. And as I pulled up, I saw a house with Fieldstone on the front. And I thought, Fieldstone? check. But is it going to be cute enough for Sheila? That's what I was thinking. I went through to the degree that guys can find things cute. I thought it was adorable. 
And just three days later, after Sheila had looked at it and we, have pray- and we had prayed about it and talked about it, after a lot of bad decisions, after some cruddy map quest directions and a few setbacks, that house was ours. And 18 years later, that house is ours. Through many twists and turns, each of them unexpected, each of them frustrating, God led me to where I was supposed to be. And his hand had never left me. His hand never will leave me. And his hand will never leave you. Even as we see in the book of Ruth in our willful disobedience to him. Because God is good and sovereign. Because God is a loving provider. Because God knows our destination even when we don't. And he is faithful to ensure our arrival. As one pastor put it, in all the setbacks of your life as a believer, God is plotting for your joy. Do you believe it? While the life of the godly is certainly not a straight line to glory, we do get there. God sees to it. He has promised to finish what he began in us and to take us to where he is. That's the story of all who trust in God, and it's Ruth and Naomi's story too. In chapter one of Ruth, we see God provide food for his people. In Christ, God becomes our food. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In chapter two, we see Ruth, an outsider, leave her people and nation. In Christ, we who are far off find the kindness of God, refuge in God. And our greatest needs are met in God. We join a new people and become ambassadors for an everlasting nation and eternal kingdom. In chapter 3, we see Boaz commit to loving and redeeming Ruth. In Christ, we have a true and a better Boaz. Jesus is our true kinsman and redeemer. And through Jesus, we are freed from the slavery of sin and death. Wrongs are made right and justice is done once for all. We are brought into his family and adopted as sons and daughters. And in chapter 3, we also see Boaz commit to Ruth's rest and wellness. In Christ, we have one who would not rest until through his death and resurrection, he accomplished our true rest in him. In Christ, we can rest from trying to earn or to achieve what he freely gave. And in chapter four, we see God restore Naomi and give her a grandson. In Christ, out of the poor, the diminished, and the bitter, God brings about his true purposes and his perfect plan. And he does it through a baby born to a virgin in Bethlehem a thousand years later, the very place that this story began. The book of Ruth, my friends, is for the disobedient who falsely believe that abundant life and perfect love can be found outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are saved from God's wrath and instead we find shelter under his wings. It is for the outcast who believes they are beyond God's love, beyond his forgiveness, beyond his grace. And the book of Ruth is for those who want to see others come to know God as they know him. Isn't Ruth's declaration 
to Naomi in chapter one, a curious declaration? Have you thought about as we read through the book of Ruth, what is it that brought Ruth to faith? Listen again to what Ruth says to Naomi in chapter one, beginning in verse 16. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Why was Ruth willing to leave everything and everyone she had ever known for a God she did not know in a land she had never been to? Did a traveling preacher come through Moab and have an altar call that she responded to? Did someone give her the new Joyce Meyer or Beth Moore book that she read? No offense to Joyce or Beth. Did she attend a seeker-friendly Sunday school service where she learned of this God of Israel? Of course not. There's really only one likely explanation for what appeared to be a life-transforming faith in God. Ruth came to faith in God through relationship. Through relationship. She saw up close and personal the faith of her mother-in-law. She watched Naomi worship God through suffering. She likely had conversations, many conversations with Naomi about the God of Israel. And she thought, I want to know, love, and follow this God. Please hear me. There is nothing wrong with preaching. Apologetic arguments, winsome books, or Bible studies, but to expect those things alone to transform lives apart from relationship is foolish. That's why we're so nuts about community here at Disciples Church. We recognize the value of it, how God works in and through it. It is through gospel-centered community that Christ saves and changes lives. 2,000 years ago, God didn't drop CDs, pamphlets, and books from the sky for us to listen to or read. He sent his son. The word became flesh. And Jesus lived with us, and he ate with us, and he walked with us, and he talked with us. And before he ascended, Jesus told us to go into the world and to make disciples through a relationship, and by loving those that we encounter in our time and in our place. And sermons, books, programs are merely tools, tools that we use in the context of the relationships that God leads us into. Finally, the book of Ruth is for those who feel disillusioned with God, who feel abandoned by God or betrayed by God. Is that where you are today? Because Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and indwelling spirit assure us that he loves us. Even when we deem ourselves unlovable, all you need to do is look at the cross of Christ. How much more could he tell you that he loves you? The book of Ruth tells us that he has not abandoned us and he is with us Always, not only by his spirit, but in and through his church, our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
the book of Ruth assures us that we have not gone too far. Are you wrestling, wonder whether, wondering whether or not God can actually forgive this sin, this habitual sin that you just keep entering into? Can God actually forgive me of that? We are never beyond the reach of his love and grace. The life and the love that we each long for can only be found in him. In Christ, my friends, we have been restored. We have been made family. And we have found our true rest and redemption in him. Let's pray. Our Father, Goel, Redeemer and Kinsman, we praise you. We were far off and you drew near. We were in the wilderness and you brought us into the promised land. In our bitterness, you gave us reason for pleasantry. You have spread your wings over us and saved us from wrath. You have been kind and not forsaken the living or the dead. Jesus' redemption is ours because the punishment we deserved was yours. You tasted death so that we could be swallowed up in life. When we partake in you, God, our hunger vanishes and our thirst is no more. You alone can fully satisfy. Would you help us to see you, Jesus, as the hero of every story? the signpost of love and grace along crooked pathways and the prize that we receive at the end of our race. Born in Bethlehem for our redemption. We love you, thank you, and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.